If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 25 this morning in our second message on our series from the book of Genesis, where we are looking at seeing Christ in all of Scripture. I've been really enjoying going through the book of Genesis together with you, church, and on our Facebook page. We have a daily devotional, and I've just been enjoying reading along in the book of Genesis and meditating upon God's Word together with you. Thank you for your insights that you've been sharing. Very excited about the way the Lord is stirring our hearts and looking forward to the way the Lord's going to minister to us this morning from Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis 2. Let's begin reading in verse 4. And the title of the message this morning is The Creator-Creature Distinction. Let's read verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Oh, we thank you so much, God, for being such a giver of good gifts. And we, we, we worship you as the creator of all things. And we also thank you so much that you are such a giver of good things. Thank you so much for creating us as man and woman to be able to serve you on this earth. And thank you for your goodness displayed in this passage. Help us to see your heart of goodness and goodwill toward us as your creatures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a theology professor who starts his first day out at class by writing on the board for his theology students basically two truths. The first is, there is a God. And secondly, you are not him. (laughs) There is a God. And you are not him. This professor seeing it vital to convey to his students at the beginning of studying about God that God is the awesome creator and we are his creatures. We are his creation. And there's a certain uh, humbling that that truth brings about in our lives and one that we should make note of and we should ponder greatly. And we see that here in Genesis chapter 2 that there is a God and we are not him. God is the creator. We are the created or the creature. We owe our existence to him, and we ought to offer up to him our whole lives. There's a wonderful distinction here also in the fact that in Genesis chapter 1, God is um, really used by the name of Elohim, or the great Almighty One. And we talked about how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is the transcendent name of God, Elohim. But here in Genesis chapter 2, the description of the name of the Lord is for the Lord God in verse 5. For the Lord God is speaking of the, the personal name of God combined with Elohim, which is Yahweh Elohim which speaks to not just the transcendence of God and the almighty power of God, but also of the personal imminence of our God as well. And so God is the creator. We are the creature. God is transcendent, and yet God is also imminent. He is high and all-powerful. He is Elohim, and yet He is personal and intimate, making a covenant with man and keeping his promises to man. He relates personally to man. He is Yahweh, Elohim. And that title, the Lord God, is meant to convey both of these things to us. And the the idea of God's transcendence and God's imminence ought to produce within us, brothers and sisters, um, both the love of God and the fear of God. The fact that God is the creator and we are the creature definitely creates a sense of just there is, he is other, he's holy, he's, 
He's different from us. He's separate from us. But the fact that God created us in His image and and comes and creates us and plants a garden and puts us in the garden and relates and walks in the garden with us speaks to the imminence of God, the close personal nature of God, and ought to cause us to love God. So we ought to have a really strong sense of the love of God, and we ought to have as believers a very strong sense simultaneously of the fear of God. We must worship Him as the one who is transcendent, Elohim, almighty, all-powerful creator of the universe, and also worship Him for the God who is imminent, who is near, who is close, Yahweh, who makes promises to His people and sends His very own Son to come and die and shed His blood that we might be forgiven and cleansed and saved. Do you worship him for both his transcendence and his imminence? There can be a tendency to focus as believers either on one or the other. But we must focus on both. If we only accent the transcendence of God, then God, we will have a sense of awe and wonder at his sovereign power. But there can be a sense of God being distant from us which would not be true. But if we only focus also exclusively on the imminence of God, there can be a familiarity with our personal relationship with Him that can sometimes lead to us being deficient in the fear of God. So if we focus exclusively on the imminence of God, we can be light on the fear of the Lord because we need to remember that He's also transcendent. But on the other side of it, if we only exclusively focus on the fact that he's transcendent, almighty, omnipotent, the creator of the universe, then what that can affect is our our sense of God's personal love for us in Christ. And so we really need both truths. The fact that he is Elohim, transcendent one, and yet he is also Yahweh, the imminent one who loves us and enters into communion with us. Let us have awe and wonder and reverence for our awesome God, for He is a consuming fire. Amen? And let us also marvel at the personal, close, nearness, personal relationship that every true believer in Christ has with Yahweh Elohim, that He is transcendent and imminent, and enjoy Him for all of who He is. We see the glory of all of who He is here in Genesis 1. If Genesis 1 represents sort of, if you go on to Google Earth, the first uh, screenshot of Google Earth if you, is you're zoomed all the way out and you can see the entire planet Earth if you've ever done that before. And then what Genesis 2 does is Genesis 2 shows God as Creator, but it zooms in from Google Earth seeing the whole Earth into the Garden of Eden and shows a, a zoomed-in approach of what took place in Genesis 1, 27 with the creation of man and the creation of the Garden. So there's a zoomed-in approach of God's creative power, and we see as we zoom in here in Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 25, both the transcendence and the imminence of our awesome God.
And we see three points from this passage that we're going to focus in on this morning. Number one, that God formed man. God formed man. Secondly, God planted a garden. God planted a garden. And thirdly, God made a woman. God made a woman. Let's look firstly at God formed man. God formed man. And we see this here in verses 4 and 5, that there's this description of the generations of the heaven and earth. This is where it's zooming in here. And in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, there's sort of a play-by-play detailed analysis of what takes place now. The scope becomes uh, less grand on the whole universe and more focused on the Garden of Eden. In verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. This is an interesting description. Man wasn't created yet, and God created the garden, the area that was going to really be a paradise for Adam and Eve to live in, which is so good of our giving God. He 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 recognized here that there's goodness in not creating everything to its maximum glory and potential because he's going to create man who's going to work in the garden and cultivate the garden so that it becomes beautiful. And the beauty of the garden is going to grow even more beautiful due to man's hard work. It's important to note in Genesis 1 that work was created by God for our good. And it was created by God prior to the fall. Work is not a byproduct of the fall. Now, the toil and the sweat and the thorn of work comes as a result of the fall. But work is good. And so when we go to our jobs tomorrow and go back to work on Monday morning, there can be a real difference that can be made when we recognize that God created work and work is good. And there's something wonderful here that in the very beginning, right before he creates man, we see that the garden has some things that need to take place yet in it. There needs cultivation. There was no man yet to work in it. And so God is is showing that the progression of the beauty of the Garden of Eden, that man is going to have a hand in it through his labor and through his work. And, and there's a good gift of God in work to engage our mind and our bodies, to see and engage and have purpose in life. And God is so good in giving us that gift. In verse 6 it says, actually a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then in verse 7 we see God form man. Point one, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. That language there is really of an artisan and artistry. It's, it's, it's the same kind of language used talking about the, the potter shaping the clay. God forming man is, is, is not just this mechanical duty, but God rolls up, rolls up his sleeves and gets in and, and there's a creative power from God going forth as the potter. He says, I am the potter. You are the clay. You are the work of my hands in Isaiah. And this is a great description of God forming man. He, he's giving man the gift of a body that he's forming. 
and he's forming man of dust from the ground. And then he does this. He not only forms his body, he breathes into his nostrils, verse 7, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. You have to understand that this phrase, the breath of life, is what puts us in distinction from all the other animals that are created. The, the breath of life, or God's divine breath, is something distinctly that mankind receives. Man and woman receives the breath of life by God as a special distinct gift. And this, this maps onto what we read in Genesis 1 last week, that we were created in the image of God. There's, we're really a pinnacle of God's creation. He speaks into us our existence, and breathes into our nostrils the breath of life. This also points to not just the physical life that the Lord creates us with, but also that he's a God who's also going to speak into our existence also spiritual life through the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. God is a God who breathes into man life. He forms man, shapes us as a potter does clay from the dust, but then breathes life into us. And this is meant to cause us just to marvel and to say thank you, God, for creating us. When we read Psalm 139 and we see that you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You see, once again, this isn't just the activity of just biological processes that God doesn't have a hand in. When the Word of God says that the Lord knits you together, in your mother's womb, there's intentionality, there's artistry, there's beauty, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And we need to understand that. We need to remember that because God doesn't miss a detail. Every detail of our lives is covered by the Lord. I remember uh, going to the doctors a little while ago, and you know how they have the posters on the wall. For some reason, uh, my eye was drawn to, they had this... Uh, a diagram of the human ear. <laughs> and there's this little bone in the ear called the stapes. The tiniest bone in the human body, but without it, you couldn't even live. And, and the Lord just impressed upon me that, like, I formed your stapes. <laughs> Not just your whole body, but I gave you exactly the right quantity of what you needed in every bone of your body so that you can exist and so that you can live and move and have your being. Is he not a good God? And those are worthy meditations for us as we study science and as we study human anatomy just to marvel at man and, and what God has done in shaping us and fashioning us exactly like he has. It's a, it's a cause for worship for us to look at God and see how he has formed us. He indeed is a giving God. He is an awesome creator and so kind to give us life and breath. You know, we, we, in this um, <clears throat> in this series, we're looking at seeing Christ in all of Scripture. The fact that we've been created from the dust also ought to humble us um, and Dust really is uh, where we come from, and it's also to where we'll return. God is the only almighty, omnipotent, uncreated one, as Chris Tomlin sings in his song. And that ought to cause us, as we look at the creator-creature distinction, 
to cause us to worship and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God as we are living our lives. You know what it also ought to do? When we read Philippians chapter 2, and we see that God himself volunteered to take on dust of flesh, to humble himself and to become a servant, to become a man, so that he might come and rescue fallen dust by becoming dust himself. We ought to worship Christ for his humiliation, for his humility, and to recognize that because of Christ's glorious sacrifice, this dust and every bit of dust out here that has repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, you're not going to end in dust. You're going to end in eternal glory with Jesus forever and ever in heaven. God formed man from the dust. God was willing to become dust and take on dust in order to save us. It also kind of affected me thinking about this and meditating upon this, that the breath of life was breathed into us. God himself suffered himself in the person of Christ. When you read that Jesus breathed his last. The breath of life went out from him so that we who have repented of our sins and trusted in him might receive the gift of eternal life. So that not only do we receive physical life by having the breath of life breathed into us by this kind, awesome God, but also that we are on the receiving end due to Jesus' last breath. His dying breath has brought us eternal life. And I know that it is finished when we sing. It is finished was his cry. He cried out in agony when he breathed his last. He did that willingly to save you and I. Aren't you so grateful, brothers and sisters, for our awesome Savior, our awesome God, who formed us and who saved us? What a giving God. What a generous God. God formed man. He formed Adam. The second point is God planted a garden. God planted a garden. It says in verse 7, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He didn't just create us and, and leave us. He created a garden. He planted a garden to put us into it so that we might work the garden, but really to enjoy the beauty of the garden, this garden described here as the Garden of Eden, this word Eden in the Hebrew is where we get the word paradise. It really is literally the Garden of Paradise. And you see, as we sung this morning, Josh in the worship team did such a great job singing the song, Generous King, that you would not only form us, but that you would plant us in the Garden of Eden as man. Again, Lord, what is man that you're even mindful of us? as dust, and yet you love us. You're transcendent, and you form us, and yet 
You're eminent and you love us. Oh, such knowledge is high. It's so lofty. I can't attain it, David says in the Psalms. And it ought to cause us to marvel as well. What an awesome giving God to form us and then also plant us in the Garden of Eden. Look at the details of the Garden of Eden. The Lord God planted a garden in in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. That phrase is going to come up again in the next chapter. But you see that our generous God provides all these trees that are pleasing to the sight and good for food. Mankind was wanting for nothing. Adam was wanting for nothing. We were wanting for nothing. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was placed in there as well. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided. So we see this description here of the four rivers that are flowing in and around the Garden of Eden, and it's watering the garden. And as Adam begins to tend it, it flourishes, and the work of man flourishes and prospers due to God's sustaining of his creation and of God providing everything that man needs to prosper in his work. Never forget brothers and sisters, that the money that you earn is a gift from God and it's, it's, it's God's sustaining of you just as he sustained Adam in the garden. He's a kind God who doesn't just create you, but he also sustains you and provides for all of your needs, all of your food that you need, all of the money that you need. Our God is so generous, isn't he? And I'm so thankful we can praise him as Jehovah Jireh, our provider, providing for all of our details. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see the generosity, the overwhelming generosity of the Lord, and the sustaining, and it's symbolized here by the rivers. There's also these gems and precious jewels in the midst of the garden. There's gold there, and and bdellium and onyx, and All of these rivers are symbolizing life and sustaining, and the gems are symbolizing richness and beauty and glory. This is the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God was so kind and generous to Adam to provide for him all of these things. In planting the garden, you know, you can think, oh, man, well, why do we have to really study the details of the Garden of Eden? Because, you know, we kind of lost that. And now what we've got is a lot of desert and wilderness, honestly, in the midst of even all the beauty of the earth. There's so much that's barren and has been just raked over by the fall. That's true. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember this happy truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings into effect That when we die in the Lord, when you are a Christian and you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've repented of your sins, you're born again to a living hope. So salvation isn't all about the here and now, brothers and sisters. Salvation is leading to us going to a new heavens and a new earth, a new paradise, if you will. And I just can't, help but just get excited to tell you a little bit about this because when you look in revelation chapter 22 if you turn there with me 
you see a description of where we're going. That God planted a garden, and yes, man, through his sin, destroyed the garden, was cast out of the garden. But God, because of his work through Christ, reconciled us to himself, and he also is going to bring us back to this place. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Here we go again with the river. So these descriptions of the four rivers in Genesis chapter 2 and the glory of the life flowing through the garden and, and everything being sustained by these waters. There's a river of the water of life in a new garden, in a new garden of Eden. It's bright as crystal, this river. I mean, use your imagination for where we're going. A river that is as bright as crystal. That's enough to put some light into your eyes this morning in the midst of your sufferings and in the midst of our depressions and all the things in this life that are so sad and so painful to contemplate. To remember that God is bringing us once again into a place, into a new heavens and new earth and a new Jerusalem where there's another park, there's another garden with a river flowing through it as bright as crystal. That's just awesome. (laughs) And I cannot wait to go there and be there with you. And I'm excited to be there with you, but I'm excited to see Jesus, aren't you? Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, the city of the New Jerusalem. So it's flowing out from the throne of God. It's flowing out from the throne of the Lamb. You know, it's interesting. i got to just pause here. This is a this is a glorious meditation, but flowing out from the throne of the Lamb is this crystal river <laughs> that's sustaining life in the New Jerusalem. It's written that there's no temple in the city because Jesus describes in John two that He's the temple. There's no need for the light of the city to shine because Jesus Himself is the light. He's the temple. He's the light. There's no need for sun anymore. But because of Jesus being there, oh, it's awesome. On either side of the river, the tree of life. Where? Whoa, what? what is that? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month is there. Where? In the new Jerusalem, where we're going to when we see Jesus face to face. This is our future. And it's yielding its fruit each month. It seems that, it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It seems that part of the eternal life of us just living forever is going to be us returning to the new Jerusalem and partaking of the tree of life in an ongoing way forever and ever and ever and enjoying the fruit of that tree, which we were once closed off from because of our fallenness. Now God's brought it all back around in this glorious reconciliation. We're no longer are the cherubim blocking our entrance, but we are actually welcomed in to this new paradise that's better than Adam and Eve ever had it. That's where we're going, and that's why it's exciting to study Genesis chapter 2, and it's relevant for us. Because not a detail's lost here. we got rivers and better rivers. Tree of life, not just bearing one fruit, it's bearing 12 fruits. And the Lamb itself, Himself is the light. And He's described in John chapter 2 as the temple. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again 
in three days, speaking of his death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, this is glorious to ponder the Garden of Eden and the garden that's going to be in the new heavens and new earth. You know, I was studying this a little bit, and it was prophesied in the days of Joel and also in the days of Ezekiel that when the Messiah would come, a river would flow out from the temple in Jerusalem and the river would create such water of refreshing that as Ezekiel walked out in Ezekiel 37 or Ezekiel 47 and just kept walking great distances, he kept seeing the water just kept rising and the water level just kept rising. It's speaking of when the Messiah comes, when Christ comes, there's going to be rivers of living water that flow out from him, the true temple the one whom the temple in the Old Testament always pointed to, this is where you go to meet God. You meet God through trusting in Christ, the true temple. And out from the temple, there's a river. Out from His throne in Revelation, there is a river river of life that flows. This awesome God, this awesome Creator, loves us so much that He died on the cross for our sins. In John chapter 2, he says, I am the temple. In John chapter 7, he says these glorious words in John chapter 7. You might remember this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, rivers of living water are going to flow out from his people as Jesus is proclaimed to the nations. Waters of refreshing, as Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, ask of me and I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst again. Waters of refreshing. Waters of sustaining forever are in Jesus Christ. And here we see Adam being refreshed and the Garden of Eden being refreshed by rivers that God created. I love seeing the way the Lord brings it all back around again. Everything that we, through our sin, mess up, God goes hard at work to redeem and restore. Aren't you so thankful that God is a redeeming God? A restoring God, brothers and sisters. A God who gives of Himself in this way. We see there's also the gift of a choice given to man. He says, The Lord God, in verse 15, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to tend it, literally to work in it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's there's goodness in God giving us the ability, specifically as man. We're not creatures of instinct that just do what the animals do. We have the ability to choose to obey God. And God puts this tree, these two trees in the center of the garden, and says that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it, Adam. For in the day that you eat of it, it'll be a death sentence. That's what the phrase means, you shall surely die. 
It means that you're going to, a death sentence will come upon you. We tend to think of the negative of the call to obedience, but I want to just meditate just for a moment with you. Just the glory of God giving us the ability to choose to obey him and how good that is. All of us have temptations that come our way on a daily basis, temptations towards impurity and sin. And Do you realize that when God says to be pure and to be holy as he is holy, like we looked at with our youth last night in our youth meeting, that when we as his creation choose to obey him and to say no to ungodliness and choose Christ instead, there's an opportunity there to display such worship and specific love for God in our obedience to God. And God created this tree in the midst of all the other trees and said, this one tree you can't eat from it. And I want us to see the goodness of God in giving man the opportunity to choose in the Garden of Paradise to display an act of worship of obedience to God to say, God, I love you so much that though that one tree there is there, I'm not going to eat of it because I love you and I love your commandments. Jesus said this in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. One of the ways our love for God is manifest is when we are being pressed and tempted to give in to our flesh and we say, you know what, as as Titus says, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to turn away from that and say, I choose you, Jesus, because you are more desirable than this tree. I obey you. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. And I want want us to see the goodness of God and what he did here in giving us the good gift also of a choice to be able to choose to worship him and serve him like he does to Adam in the garden. God planted this garden. And Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so this moves us to the third point. God made a woman. And how glorious this is. In verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Everywhere else throughout Genesis 1 and 2, at the end of everything God created, he says it was good. This is the first time that the Lord notes Something's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And so then this this is such a glorious section here in 19 where the Lord forms every beast of the field in the garden and every bird of the heavens in the garden and brings them to man to see what he would call them. It's like God's there. He's like, you know, I I gave names and titles to everything in Genesis 1. Here, I, I want to see what you're going to call them. It's just this, this communion with God, this intimacy, this closeness, this imminence of God displayed here. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. That's just awesome. The way the Lord is working in the midst of creation and giving man this glorious position to be able to name the animals. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God did something again. He does something very generous, very glorious. God, the creator, 
becomes God the giver again, and he sees that there's something lacking, there's something not good, and he causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while Adam slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and then brought her to the man. Now, this phrase, brought her to the man, I want you to get into this. This is so exciting. The description here is God being like the father of the bride, creating woman and then just presenting this gift to Adam. Oh, it's just giving me the chills thinking about it. Just the goodness of God and that he could have just created woman and just like allowed her to walk over to him, just kind of remain distant. But he's, he's almost like walking his daughter down the aisle to his beloved Adam and giving him this precious gift of a wife that he saw that it wasn't good for him to be alone. He's like, I got something for you. I got a precious gift for you and I'm going to walk her to you. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last, this at last is, is a description of great joy on Adam and Eve's wedding day. You call it that is this at last is bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I want to uh, reference a glorious quote that I think you guys will all love from Matthew Henry. It's a famous quote, but I think you'll love it as we read it together. Matthew Henry writes, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. This is awesome. Under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that great? God created this just perfectly and creates woman out from man. And in verse 24, the word of God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is just a description of just the innocence of being in paradise before the fall, being in the garden of paradise, the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve together, and they had not yet fallen into sin, and so they hadn't yet reached with that self-autonomy to say, I want to attain the knowledge of good and evil on my own. I want that knowledge autonomously, and I want to know good and evil experientially. And they were in paradise, and there was no sense or no evil thoughts about the two of them being together, naked and not ashamed. What that means is there was, there was no guilt in the intimacy of their relations together as husband and wife. It was just perfectly free and glorious and innocent and joyous. Adam was saying this at last. There was no blame shifting of his wife yet. This was just God's original design. You see how beautiful God has created marriage and God has created the family. It's so wonderful that we have this glorious relationship of a giving God who gives man a precious gift, a helper suitable. And that word helper is used 
throughout the scriptures to describe God himself. The word helper, far from being a word of weakness or a a word of inferiority, it's not at all. The word helper is a strong word used of God himself, Old Testament and New, to talk about how God helps his people. This helper is a glorious and noble calling, ladies, and one to embrace with great joy. And gentlemen, we should cherish and love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We should, as Matthew Henry said, treat her as our equal. We should always have her under our arm to be protected and near our heart to be beloved. We should fight for the closeness and the intimacy that God calls us to walk in. And we should thank God, who is a God who gives such glorious gifts to His children. God formed man, He planted a garden, and He made a woman. And I just want to close with saying this. Derek Kidner writes, Even at our making then, the pattern God so loved that He gave is already visible. God so loved that He gave. He gave us life and breath and our being, brothers and sisters. He gave us everything that we need, every provision we need. He gave us the good gift of fellowship with Him and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellowship within the covenant of marriage. God sees every need we have and all that we need His hand has provided. And the greatest need we had was the need to be forgiven for choosing to break away from all this paradise, to turn to sin instead. It could have been the end game right there. But God said, no. I'm going to send my own Son, Jesus Christ, to take on dust because this dust that I've created into man and woman I love so much that I'm going to send my son to come to have the breath of life taken out of his nostrils so that they might not only live physically, but so that they might live eternally before me in the new paradise that's just going to blow their minds. What an awesome God. Worship band, could you return? I think we need to sing Generous King again, don't you think? Generous King... Giver, giver, what a great creator, what a great giver our God is. And let us thank the Lord. Let us praise him for being so generous to us. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Josh will close the service after we uh, close in worship. And I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'll be in the back to, to greet. Let's, let's pray and ask for God to bless our time in worship. Lord, we thank you so much for how generous you are. We thank you for being a generous king. 
you just are so lavish in what you have provided for us. Life and breath and our being. All the provision. All the richness of your bounty that you provide for all our needs. Thank you so much providing for providing the precious gifts you have in our lives. Thank you so much, most of all, for providing the most precious gift, Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you so much that he laid down his life to give us eternal life, those of us who have believed. As Josh mentioned earlier, Lord, if there's anybody here who has not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus, if they haven't yet turned away from their old life, to say yes to following you, Jesus. I pray that they would at this time and that they would receive the gift of eternal life and to be able to join us in worship right now for our generous King and our awesome God. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful for you. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship him.